Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. And my special guest today is Garrett Allison, an environment reporter at MLive and Grand Rapids Press in Michigan, who covers Michigan environment and the Great Lakes. He started his career as a business reporter for the Grand Rapids Press, MLive's largest newspaper, and has won multiple awards from both the Associated Press Media Editors and the Michigan Press Association. Since 2016, he has specialised in reporting on PFAS and their impact on Michigan's people and environment. His work has directly influenced state environmental policy and the creation of Michigan's first state-specific drinking water standards for harmful chemicals. His extensive reporting on PFAS, the Wolverine Worldwide Drinking Water Pollution in Rockford, helped earn him the 2017 Journalist of the Year Award from the Michigan Press Association Foundation. And I highly recommend if you haven't had a listen to the last episode of Talking PFAS News, episode 27, that you have a listen to that one because it's also a discussion with Garrett about two of his most recent articles discussing some preliminary research about PFAS in rain with PFAS in rain detected at Cleveland, Ohio at a thousand parts per trillion. Also, he discusses two new bills that have just been introduced into Congress. They haven't been passed yet. But if passed, they will impact the military regarding PFAS. And my discussion with Garrett today will include the following. 3M's lawsuit against the state of Michigan. We'll discuss PFAS contamination in the Wolverine Worldwide Contamination in Rockford, PFAS in Wurtsmith Air Force Base of Skoda, and PFAS in Parchment, where there was a recent settlement for $11.9 million. And listeners, you might remember we discussed that in episode 24 with Boston attorney John Gardella. So you can catch up on that one as well. And because today's episode is a long one, I didn't want to add too many extra details. But if you want to know more about any of the PFAS situations that we discussed today, you can feel free to check out Garrett Allison's work on Muckrack, where he has hundreds of PFAS articles listed there. Now to today's discussion. My name is Garrett Ellison. I'm an environment reporter at MLive and the Grand Rapids Press in Michigan. How long have you been reporting on PFAS? Well, I started reporting on PFAS in 2016. It was about May 2016, and there had been a drinking water advisory in a small town in northern Michigan on the uh, northeast side of the state uh, along the Lake Huron shoreline called Oscoda. And there's an Air Force base up there called Wurtsmith Air Force. Space. It's a former Air Force base. It closed in 1993. And in February 2016, there had been a, an alert sent out by the local health department saying, seek an alternative water supply if you're on a well, because we're finding concerning levels of this stuff called perfluorinated chemicals, called them PFCs at the time. That didn't actually get my attention right away. It was a few months later as I started getting into some more work on contamination and Superfund issues in Michigan. But I realized that this was happening in the state, and then I started to really dig in. Ever since then, Oscoda, Wurtsmith Air Force Base, PFAS, and various other sites came to light since then have been a major focus of my work. Okay, so you've been covering PFAS for five years then? Pretty much, yeah. There was a time where 
you were covering this issue exclusively. Isn't that right? Yeah. From about August, September 2017 until, you know, late summer 2019 was really about the only thing I was writing about. Because in the late summer 2017 is when the uh, Wolverine worldwide contamination in the Rockford area, that was discovered. And I was heavily involved in that initial coverage. I I broke those stories and just really snowballed from there in Michigan. And I was the environment reporter. I had a lot of experience at that point. years worth of experience, give or take, covering this type of contamination at Worksmith Air Force Base up in Oscoda. So I was familiar with the chemistry. I was familiar with some of the ways that responsible parties try to downplay the health concern. I understood the issue of it being sort of an emerging contaminant and at that point understood what the implications of it could be. And I had an idea of some idea of the future trajectory of what this contamination would look like. And so I was in a really good place to do some really hard-hitting news reporting on the Wolverine issue because it really happened right in my backyard. You know, as a Grand Rapids press reporter, Wolverine is a company headquartered in Rockford, which is a suburb of Grand Rapids. You know, I was ideally positioned, you know, there to be able to aggressively report on the situation. And so out of the Wolverine situation and the reporting, the state of Michigan really took that seriously. This is happening after the Flint water crisis. It's the same governor who was heavily criticized for the response in Flint. And he really responded to the PFAS thing as it came out after Rockford uh, in a much more robust way. He didn't want to be seen as repeating the mistakes that were made in Flint. And so they threw a huge amount of resources from the state level at PFAS and they started looking for it in drinking water across the state. Every public drinking water supply, they created this sort of multi-faceted task force that existed across state departments. The governor that you just mentioned, who is that? That was Rick Snyder, Republican governor. Who's the governor now? Uh, The governor of Michigan now is a woman named Gretchen Whitmer. She's a Democrat. And, you know, interestingly enough, for this PFAS discussion, she made drinking water and PFAS a major part of her campaign in 2018. And that was uh, at a time when we were doing a lot of reporting about it. And I know from speaking to her and people around her that the reporting we were doing was being consumed by her and her campaign. And that was part of the reason she spoke so much about drinking water on the campaign trail. Now, I just want to go back to the Flint water crisis. There will be listeners that are not familiar with Flint. We don't need to go into detail, but Flint was about something other than PFAS, wasn't it? Sure, the Flint water crisis wasn't PFAS. It was lead in in the drinking water, and it came in after the city switched to the Flint River from Lake Huron water through the Detroit system. And there's a long explanation there around, you know, failures in the treatment system and whatnot. But essentially, yes, it was a lead and drinking water crisis, not PFAS. But because of that crisis, like you said, uh, there's been hypervigilance in the state of Michigan. Is that right? Well, in the United States, the Flint water crisis became a national story. You know, everybody knows what happened in Flint in the United States. It's sort of a household name for drinking water issues in the U.S. And so the administration of Rick Snyder was heavily criticized. You know, he's essentially being indicted right now on the legacy of that issue. 
It seems like Michigan's done more testing, as I understand it, than many other states in America. Is that true? Yes, definitely. And that's why Michigan came up with these maximum contaminant levels last year that are stricter than other states in America. Is that right? Yeah. uh, In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Michigan has seven maximum contaminant levels for uh, seven different PFAS individual chemicals. Michigan has very strict individual limits for a couple of PFAS chemicals, but it doesn't sort of combine them in the way that I think a lot of advocates uh, around the issue would prefer where they're being treated as sort of a class. Yes. So your maximum contaminant levels, as I understand it, they are now enforceable. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, they were promulgated as enforceable drinking water standards under state law, right? That, and that happened in August 2020, and it was something that was initiated basically immediately after Gretchen Whitmer took over as governor from Rick Snyder. That was in 2019? Yeah, yeah, early 2019. Garrett, I recently interviewed a attorney from Boston, John Gardella, and we spoke about a recent settlement in Michigan for 11 point. $9 million. Can you tell me a little bit more about that one? Sure. That was a class action lawsuit settlement that had been brought against a couple of companies. It was brought by people who live in the suburb city of Parchment, which uh, is uh, essentially next to Kalamazoo. It's in the southwest part of Michigan. They had sued 3M and Georgia Pacific essentially stating that they're the ones that caused the drinking water emergency that was discovered in 2018. So Parchment did not at the time get its drinking water from the city of Kalamazoo. It had its own drinking water system and it had wells along the Kalamazoo River just north of an old paper mill landfill and an old paper mill that has been sort of falling into disrepair for a number of years. And through the state of Michigan's drinking water testing for PFAS across the state, which happened in the wake of the Wolverine worldwide contamination, they found parchment, which they found very high levels. I think we're talking about like 1,800 parts per trillion, you know, in, in the municipal drinking water supply, right? So it was, it was pretty high. It was a pretty big dose. And it was was clear that it had been going on for a long time Uh, and only just been discovered because the state started looking through all the drinking water supplies in Michigan. And so that was treated as, you know, that was a hard stop on drinking parchment water, right? It was the state uh, authorities kind of swooped in and said, everybody stop drinking water, here's bottled water. Um, And then they started doing everything they could to connect the Kalamazoo drinking water system to the parchment drinking water system, which, and it wasn't just as simple as, you know, switching a valve or something. They, they, they were, ended up being like using the fire trucks to connect one hydrant on the Kalamazoo system to another hydrant on the parchment system, you know, half a mile away or something like that. Um, and that, it, it was, it was a mess. And, uh, in the wake of that, there was a there was a lawsuit filed against 3M uh, as the manufacturer of the chemicals and Georgia Pacific as the owner of the paper mill and the land and the landfill uh, where the contamination was traced from. And so that was just settled for 11.9 million U.S. dollars. Yeah, very interesting. And parchment is particularly 
of concern to you. Why? Well, I happen to live in Parchment, basically. I uh, not exactly within the city limits, but I, you know, I can almost kind of see him out the window. And uh, my daughter lives in Parchment. Um, we didn't live in Parchment at the time. Um, we moved. Uh, well, she moved, uh, and then I followed. Um, you know. And um, she's she's five now. And um, actually, I look at some of the work that, uh, you know, we did uh, reporting about the problem, raising awareness, uh, sort of prompting the government to do all this testing. And I see that as, you know, as like being fortuitous because, you know, uh, it ended up keeping my daughter from being exposed to that in the, in the parchment drinking water. Uh, by the time she got to parchment, the water supply was safe and then, you know, the chemicals weren't, you know, um, weren't in them anymore. So that's a, it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, way that that kind of worked out for myself and my own family. Okay. That's very good. How did they get the PFAS out of the water? Are they using reverse osmosis to houses or? No, Parchment just essentially shut those wells down. Now it, the city of Parchment gets its drinking water from the city of Kalamazoo, which does still have some very, very low levels of PFAS in it but we're talking single digit parts per trillion and it's blended with water from wells that don't have PFAS and so it's sort of a fact of life at this point that if you are connected to municipal water in Kalamazoo you're getting some sort of trace amount of it but certainly nothing like what was happening in parchment before that. And of course with the new MCLs that are in place that we just spoke about earlier at least that will be protective of the levels getting too high correct? Well that yeah that's the idea essentially behind the new MCLs in Michigan. If you're a water system and you're finding uh, your water supply is testing for this stuff. The state government essentially requires that you start doing a lot of testing. They want to see how much of it is coming in over time. And if the water is starting to exceed the MCLs, the limits that are being set, then they're going to say, all right, you need to start, you know, filtering the water, right? So either activated carbon or reverse osmosis or something. There's one particular group of people that have a big problem with these new MCLs and you wrote about that in your article on the 7th of May. The title of that article is 3M Sues Michigan Seeks to Invalidate PFAS Drinking Water Rules. Now, can you please break that one down for our listeners? Sure. 3M, for folks who don't know, it's a chemical manufacturing giant. It's an enormous company. If you have post-it notes, they're 3M. 3M makes a ton of products that most people don't even realize. And one of the products they've made for years, decades even, is PFAS chemistry. So 3M is facing an enormous amount of liability of lawsuits uh, over PFAS in the environment and getting into people's bodies and causing health problems and, and, and so on. And so they're fighting back against attempts to regulate this stuff in drinking water. And 3M has significant resources to take governments, state governments, like the state of Michigan, to court. And that's what they're doing. So on April 21st, they filed a lawsuit uh, against the state of Michigan that seeks to invalidate the drinking water MCL. And essentially what 3M is saying is that the state's process for creating these standards was rushed. And so within their lawsuits, they're saying that process that created them was scientifically flawed. Essentially that the state rushed the development and needs to try again uh, at the very least. So anyone listening, if they want to find it, where do they go to? Which court 
it's in the Michigan Court of Claims. So in the lawsuit, 3M essentially uh, says that the state of Michigan didn't fully or didn't properly evaluate the cost to utilities, water providers from complying, you know, with all the testing and potential filtration that might be required. Okay. In their statement of claim, 3M say that Eagle failed to properly evaluate the costs of the proposed rule. By Eagle's estimate, the direct cost of compliance to the regulated community will be over $17 million in the first year, but the cost is likely to be significantly higher, and they go on to explain why. Actually, can you just explain what Eagle stands for for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, Eagle, the CUTE acronym for the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy formerly known as the DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality. What has been the reaction in the community with the politicians, with Eagle? What, what's been their reaction to 3M's lawsuit publicly? So the state of Michigan uh, reacted strongly to the lawsuit, more strongly than I would have thought, given the way that government agencies generally don't want to talk about if they're being sued or they're involved in litigation, it's usually we, we can't talk about that. The state of Michigan did not take that approach. When 3M sued them, uh, and when I started asking about it, they issued some pretty strong statements de- decrying what 3M was doing, calling it an irresponsible attack that they're going to try and have dismissed. The state attorney general said, we will, will not tolerate these poisons in our environment and our drinking water, and we will will not tolerate a corporation like 3M putting its dollars ahead of our health and our water, right? And so it issued some pretty strong statements condemning what 3M was doing. Did you have any communications with 3M over the lawsuit yourself? 3M sent a statement to me saying environmental regulations should be set using established process and rigorous science that provides public transparency and accountability. And, you know, in its rush to establish these regulations, the state of Michigan acted arbitrarily and without measured consideration of the scientific evidence or serious consideration of the cost uh, enforcement. And the 3M's lawsuit aims to prevent these arbitrary, burdensome restrictions from being implemented unless regulators follow a prescribed process, right? So they sent me a very lawyered statement, more or less summarizing their lawsuit. Was that a direct quote, Garrett? Yeah, I'm reading a statement that 3M sent to me, which I quoted in my story. What do 3M want from this lawsuit? 3M wants to strike down the state of Michigan's drinking water rules. Uh, essentially, uh, it's asking a judge to invalidate them and say that they're, you know, they're not enforceable and prevent the state of Michigan from requiring utilities and water providers to test and comply with the new rules. So 3M's argument is that the state of Michigan rushed the process of creating these drinking water standards. As a plaintiff, right, someone who who brings a lawsuit against the defendant, they're going to provide as much evidence as they can to support that argument. And that's what they've done in that complaint. When is this lawsuit supposed to be heard in court? You know, that's a good question. 
you know, to, to be honest, that's, it's a good reminder that I need to go back and check with the court and see if there's been something scheduled. Civil cases, civil litigation like this can be really complicated, and the process is very complicated, and it's not as if it automatically goes to a hearing. There's going to be a filing, so then the state of Michigan will answer that complaint in court. They have a certain amount of time to do that. The state of Michigan is going to just ignore a lawsuit from 3M. They're, they're going to respond. And th- what they're going to do is they're going to move to dismiss the lawsuit. When the state moves to dismiss, they have to file a formal motion for that. And that will be where they are essentially presenting their case. They're going to be arguing to a judge why he should throw the 3M lawsuit out and let the state carry on with regulating PFAS. Okay, so let's talk about when these MCLs came into effect in August 2020 during the pandemic. What has changed since they came into effect? In August 2020, when the... MCLs were passed, they didn't get a lot of attention, right? Everybody was pretty focused on COVID. And this was in the midst of a summer of cultural and racial tension over the George Floyd protests. And so last summer was very busy for news agencies and journalists and the public in general. And so it didn't get a lot of attention, frankly, in in Michigan. It might have had there not been COVID, But there was a significant amount of public comment from people who were engaged in this issue already. Well, you've got 2,700 water providers, correct, that that would be affected? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that those are drinking water systems or public water supplies in Michigan, right? And and that can include everything from a big municipal utility to um, a movie theater that has a well uh, in the back, and that's where they get their water that they, you know, sell the customers and soda and that kind of thing. You know, as these things were being developed, there were public hearings, there were public comment periods, there were meetings that were open to the public that I attended as a reporter where the proposals were put through review and discussion. There's actually a review board within the state Department of Eagle. The board is comprised of people from drinking water utilities, representatives of large business, representatives of environmental groups, representatives of agriculture, local government. So bodies like that flyspecked this stuff and argued over it and ultimately decided that they would approve it and pass it forward. And then it went to the state legislature. It's a Republican-controlled legislature, and it had the opportunity to stop and block these rules, which are coming through from a Democrat administration, and they didn't. It seems to me, all the layers that it went through, there were a lot of eyes looking at these changes before they were made. Oh, yeah. In fact, the groundwork for this was a toxicology review of all of the scientific literature around what the health effects of PFAS are based on what was known at the time through epidemiological studies and whatnot. And that was done under the Republican administration that preceded the Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, who picked up on that groundwork that had been laid and took it the next step and said, okay, Now we have the scientific analysis that says, yes, these things are dangerous, and now we're going to develop state regulations for them, right? And so that's the next step. That's really interesting, the background, because when we talk about 
this process being rushed, it seems like a significant amount of important work was already done. The scientific literature reviews was already carried out before Governor Whitmer came into office. Right. These toxicology reviews took place in 2018, where you had this expert scientific advisory panel looking at what the health effects of PFAS are across all the different studies, occupational studies, uh, epidemiological studies, the C8 health study. In fact, that panel was led by Dr. David Savitt, who was one of the main researchers on the C8 health study that came out of the Parkersburg, West Virginia, DuPont poisoning case. Dr. David Savitt, and he's also served as an expert, hasn't he, for plaintiffs in litigation? Yeah. The toxicology reviews in Michigan were reviewed by the top people in their field. And that review was commissioned by a Republican governor. You know, there's a political question there as to whether or not the Republican governor, Rick Snyder, knowing that this stuff is a huge problem, but he's term limited from seeking another term in office. You know, it's easy in some ways to go, look, we're going to start the process of potentially setting laws around this stuff, but it's going to be a decision that whoever becomes the next governor is going to have to make. And that's exactly what happened. I wonder, Garrett, if you could just explain for the listeners a very brief summary of the Wurt-Smith issue with PFAS that's in Oscoda, right? Right now in Michigan, there is, I think, 160, 170 sites of PFAS sites of contamination. The first one that was ever discovered was at Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda, which is, you know, the northeast part of the state on, along Lake Huron. The state found the chemicals there in 2010, and a couple of years later, they issued some fish advisories for the Osaba River and, and nearby wetlands and lakes, and that was really the very first place that this stuff was discovered in Michigan. In fact, that was one of the very first handful of U.S. military sites where the chemicals were ever discovered, right? Now we're at hundreds of U.S. bases in the United States and around the world where they found this stuff, but we're Smith and Oscoda right there in like the first three or four where they ever actually found this stuff. And in Wordsmith and like all the other military sites, it was firefighting foam, AFFF. And so that has been, you know, a long-running, slow-moving cleanup up there in Oscoda. It's still happening. But at Wordsmith, that's the very first time that a granular activated carbon groundwater treatment system was ever installed, right? And that one happened in 2015. To clean up the whole base, you're probably going to need a couple dozen of those systems. But the first one, actually, I think in any American military base, happened in Oscoda in 2015. Was there a court case against this one, Wurtsmith? No, there hasn't been court cases because in the United States, it's very, very almost impossibly difficult to sue the federal government. The, the federal government actually needs to give its consent to be sued, or there has to be some sort of act of Congress. Wow. Yeah, so to sue the federal government is very difficult, because if it weren't difficult, there would be lots of lawsuits against the Air Force or the Army or any the Department of Defense, not just from community members who have been poisoned, but from military service members who were drinking this stuff, were exposed to it through their job. Or their families, they live on base and their families also exposed? Absolutely. 
Are you familiar with Australia, our class action that just recently settled, well, last year it settled, 2020, three communities joined in a class action uh, against the Department of Defence and that settled for $212 million? I'm not familiar with that. That sounds very interesting. If you go back and listen to episode nine, you should get a very good overview of that inquiry. I haven't done the post-class action yet, but it's still not enough for many people to move from the contamination. So we still have some people who are having great trouble accepting the result. Basically, they got payment for the loss of value of their land. It was not at all about health claims. It was just about the depreciation of their land. You know, that doesn't really surprise me because it's just incredibly difficult in court to prove health claims. There would be many, many more environmentally related lawsuits and tort cases if it weren't so difficult to actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt in court that the contamination caused someone's health effects versus just as associated or linked or probably caused, as well as there's intent involved, right? And so that's another big issue at, you know, in court cases is... Exactly. Complicated. Okay, they couldn't sue your military, but what's the result? Does the military have to clean it up in Wurtsmith? You know, unfortunately, the military kind of doesn't have to clean it up. I mean, it is, but it's doing it in a really, really slow manner, right? And so it's it's doing this sort of tactic of delay where it's investigating the problem to death, right? The chemicals were discovered there in 2010, and you know, we're here in 2021 and we're still years away from the Air Force finishing its remedial investigation. And then beyond that, there still has to be a decision made on what the remedies would be. And then you have to design those remedies. And then you have to find contractors who will construct and build them. Oscoda and Wurtsmith is a, are a long, long way away from being cleaned up. There are some interim actions that are happening right now, kind of stopgap measures that are only happening because Congress is getting fed up with the military and their delay tactics. And, you know, you've got pressure from lawmakers. They write letters, they convene hearings, they still call leaders of the military to the local community for a town hall meeting and kind of subject them to the angry public comments of people who are pissed off about what's happening. And what I noticed from what you just said is something very important. It's the cost of cleanup. And if it is hard to sue your military, why will they be motivated to spend the huge amount of money that will be required for cleanup. Well, exactly. And in fact, that's part of the issue at Wordsmith and Oscoda is that this because the state has these really strict uh, rules now, if 3M were to succeed in invalidating them, you know, it just muddies the water and makes it that much more difficult for the state to try and get compliance from the federal government in what it's doing in Oscoda, where there's a huge power imbalance between the state of Michigan trying to get the federal government to do something that the federal government doesn't want to do. And can I ask a question there, Garrett? The MCLs that are in place now in Michigan, these reduced, um, you know, for much reduced levels of PFAS in the water, does the military 
have to comply with those MCLs or not? Well, I wish there was a yes or no answer there, but there isn't. Right now, they're trying to get them to comply with those, but the military says we, we follow with federal law, not state law, and federal law says we don't have to comply with those until a certain step in the process that happens much, you know, years down the road from now. Garrett, could you just explain the Wolverine situation that you mentioned for the listeners that are completely unfamiliar with what you're talking about? So Wolverine Worldwide is a enormous footwear company. They make shoes. Like hush puppies. Hush puppies, yeah. That was that was a huge product for them in the fifties uh, and sixties. I mean, it was a, a globally popular shoe. Uh, the the Rolling Stones, the Beatles wore them. It's an enormously popular legacy product for Wolverine. But people would also know that company from like Merrill brand shoes. I love Merrill. <laughs> yeah, that's Wolverine worldwide. What was the problem with Wolverine? What what happened there? So in uh, in the fifties, Wolverine started buying large quantities of Scotchgard from 3M, and they were using it at a tannery uh, in the city of Rockford, which is near uh, Grand Rapids in West Michigan. And they were using it to waterproof leather for the Hush Puppies brand shoes. And so the the Hush Puppies brand shoes were wildly popular and helped build Wolverine into a global company. And the manufacturing of them created a waste product that Wolverine just dumped into unlined landfills and gravel pits in the area. And nobody really found out that that waste product had persistent forever chemicals in it until just a few years ago. And so, you know, in 2017, a group of citizens in the Rockford area who were really concerned about the way that the the demolition of that tannery had been conducted. And so they started looking into environmental practices of Wolverine and they started to become aware of the chemicals that were used and some of the uh, old waste disposal practices that the company had done decades ago. And they started to get really worried that people in the area were being sickened and they didn't know why, right? You know, why is there a cancer cluster on this street over here? And then all of these anecdotal reports of people being sick that didn't make sense. And so they start looking into Wolverine's past waste disposal and they find these dump sites. And a big one was the House Street dump site in uh, a nearby town called Belmont. And that's like a 76-acre property where Wolverine just dug trenches out of the ground and poured tannery sludge waste from the manufacturing process into the ground and then covered the uh, trench with dirt and dug another trench nearby and did it over and over and over again. Can I step in for one second? Is That's been proven in court, hasn't it, Garrett? There was a court case? None of those facts are in dispute. In fact, there was a consent decree, uh, which is a big kind of negotiated court settlement between the state of Michigan and a couple of local government uh, townships in Michigan that were Wolverine and 3M. Uh, agreed to pay millions of dollars to extend water main area to neighborhoods where the groundwater is extremely contaminated. 
69.5 million. Is that correct from your article? That's right. I'll just read it so you can confirm I've got the right context there. The plumes were discovered in 2017 and Plainfield Township Municipal Water Mains have since been extended to some streets in an ongoing project paid for through a $69.5 million settlement with Wolverine in late 2019. Is that what you're talking about? That's right. So there's a, about a 25-square-mile area of contamination and kind of more being discovered here and there. But that's the big area of contamination north of Grand Rapids. Wolverine is headquartered in Rockford. It's a really nice small town on a river. What were the levels like in people? I believe there were some people there with the highest levels recorded of PFAS in, in people's bodies. So when Wolverine's contamination on House Street was discovered in 2017, they started testing the water of some people who lived just essentially across the street from the property that everyone thought was just a Christmas tree farm, right? Because it hadn't been used in decades. It was just a vacant piece of land. Nobody knew it was a dump. And one woman whose husband had died of liver cancer just a year before, they found record levels of PFAS in her well. I think we're talking like 80,000 parts per trillion of PFOS. And her name is Sandy Winstelt since she's become an activist. Who's very highly regarded in, in the PFAS, you know, world for essentially standing up and going, you know, look, this is what happened to me. My my husband died from this stuff. Sandy Winstelt that Garrett talks about there is a resident of Belmont, Michigan. She's known for her fight against Wolverine worldwide and PFAS. And the levels of PFAS found in Sandy's blood are truly shocking. In an article by Garrett Allison regarding Sandy's situation, he writes, A California lab found four different PFAS compounds in her blood serum. Combined, they totaled 5 million parts per trillion. Of that, one chemical PFOS was found at 3.2 million parts per trillion. Now that's about 750 times the average blood level of PFAS, according to the American Red Cross blood donor study, and that level is 4,300 parts per trillion. Now, for those of you that want to know the nanograms per mil, Sandy's combined levels of PFAS equates to about 5,000 nanograms a mil. And that blood level average, according to the American Red Cross blood donor study, equates to about 4.3 nanograms per mil. So that gives you some idea of the level of contamination in Sandy's blood. And also in that same article, Garrett writes about Sandy's husband, Joel Stout. He's her late husband. He was a protective services worker who died at 61 of liver cancer in March 2016. About 17 months later, state workers asked to test Winstout's well, which is polluted by PFOS at 542 times above the federal health guidance level. The level found in her well is the highest concentration of PFOA and PFOS that's been found in a drinking water well in the United States so far. 
and she's learned a lot about it. And she's just somebody whose life was changed by it. And, and now what she does is tries to raise awareness and she's heavily involved in regulatory reviews, citizen advisory committees, and she was honored by the EPA for her activism a couple of years ago. So following the settlement, what's happened? What have Wolverine done following this settlement? Did they have to clean up the site? Well, yeah, part of the consent decree with the state of Michigan is that Wolverine has to, A, extend drinking water mains to polluted neighborhoods, and B, has to perform cleanup at its tannery site as well as the House Street dump site. And so, unfortunately, it's not simple, you know, Wolverine must do this exact type of cleanup. You know, it was a big negotiation between Wolverine lawyers and state lawyers, and the consent decree left open some options for cleanup. And Wolverine can propose various different types of cleanup. And one of the things that they're proposing is this stuff called phytoremediation, which is essentially planting trees atop the contamination and using the tree roots to kind of suck up the contamination in the ground and sequester it in the wood. Has that been proven that trees actually suck up PFAS? It's a remediation uh, method that's used for other contaminants. In my podcast, I've talked to a researcher in Newcastle, which is, you know, in Australia, of course, and he has discovered hemp, uh, low THC containing hemp will remove 98 to 99% of PFAS from water. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about how hemp removes PFAS, you can listen to episode six with Dr. Brett Turner from Newcastle. But my question is, what sort of trees? And have these trees been proven scientifically to actually remove PFAS? So the argument that's being so, you know, the, the, there's the citizens in the neighborhood uh, around the House Street dump, you know, say, the, and, and, and there's a local uh, advisory board with some experts, some pretty smart people on it who, are, who say, like, you know, this stuff isn't proven uh, to work. And, and in, the, in, the, in the cases that it has shown to work, you know, it, you're dealing with much, much, much lower amounts of contamination than what's in the ground in, at the house at Wolverine's house street dump. You know, it's not just, you wouldn't just be sucking up contamination in polluted groundwater. You're talking about planting these trees atop the source area. You know, there is still 19 feet thick of sludge waste in some p- parts of that dump. If you sunk a 20 foot pole, through that waste, you'd only have one foot of it left uh, above the top of it. There's an enormous amount of old tannery sludge. It's a source area that's continually, every time it rains, it just adds more, it's called infiltration, right? And it extends EFOS from that source area out through a plume. It, it, besides sludge, is it also pieces of leather? I think there are still pieces of leather in some parts of the dump, you know, the local experts who have been very successful in, and these are the, these are the people who uh, essentially discovered the evidence that Wolverine had been doing this dumping back in the day and brought it to the state of Michigan and convinced the state to start doing investigations. These same people now are on some local EPA advisory uh, boards and they're kind of going, look, this is a joke, right? This uh, if there were any indication, like if fiber mediation worked, it probably would have been working, you know, for the last 
50 years on that site, and it hasn't, you know, because it's been left as a forest since the dumping stopped. There already are trees on that site, just to be clear for our listeners, there's already, because you said Christmas tree before, is there pine trees on it? Yeah, it was, it, part of the site was used as a Christmas tree farm, and most of the, I mean, the site's all been wooded, and, you know, I mean, ever since the dumping stopped in the end of the late 60s, um, you know, it's never been developed. You know, it was used as a Christmas tree farm by a local uh, farmer in the area for a while, but it's mostly just been vacant land. Um, and so there's really no indication, you know, uh, according to the, the scientists um, and the experts on the Wolverine Contamination Advisory Group, uh, who are opposing this plan. So if Wolverine decide to go ahead, uh, is there any organization that can stop them doing it? Or is it basically their choice, like you said earlier? Well, so they have uh, they have options. Uh, the, the state still gets to stay, gets, gets to, uh, it has kind of veto power in some, in some ways here. Um, so if the state of Michigan, the regulators at Michigan Eagle, uh, say no way, no, we're not, we're not doing. You're not. You can't do this fight remediation thing. And Wolverine says, "Well, we want to do that. We don't want to do the pump and treat or the options to dig it all up and uh, transport it to hazardous waste landfill. And there's just various other options that have been studied. Um, if they can't reach an agreement, then what happens is there's a clay cap." put over the contamination and that and then it's just left in place and that clay cap uh, the point of that it would be to stop the rainwater from kind of exacerbating the contamination and so that would be the barest minimum of what would eventually happen there is that the contamination and the dump is capped um but I think locals who also want to see the, uh, a pump and treat system, an extraction well uh, system, either along the edge of the dump or at the end of the plume before it gets to the, to the river, uh, to, to try and essentially do more than just leave it in place. Let's try and do some removal. The Wolverine studied the cleanup at the Huff Street dump, and, and their study compared the feasibility of several options, uh, ranging from like a uh, 200 million total waste removal where everything is dug up and trucked to a uh, hazardous waste landfill to the, the FIDO remediation option, which is about $12 million. And that would be kind of uh, planting trees over the waste, uh, you know, with a couple of really tiny areas uh, where they're putting cap over some of the worst spots. Do you think they're choosing, Wolverine's choosing the less expensive option here? Well, it does look that way. Wolverine says, you know, they're not. They, they're they saying phyto remediation is, is really a, the best option. And, and they're kind of trying to pitch it as like the least impact uh, to the local neighbors, right? Saying like, look, if you, you know, if we have to do a huge waste removal in your neighborhood, that's going to be trucks and traffic and lots of disruption of your you know lives you've already been disrupted by you know what we've done and this would make it worse whereas if we're just planting trees then you don't have all that um you know so that's that's an argument that they're making as well garrett have you been able to see any scientific evidence from wolverine about this phyto 
remediation because again like you said there there are huge levels of PFAS under that site so have they pr- provided evidence of this working they provided evidence that phytoremediation works in contamination cases and that it has worked on some lower level uh, PFAS contamination sites um, but you know the the folks who are criticizing that are saying like look that, that that's an apple to oranges comparison the the amount of waste and contamination at this site just makes it a, not a feasible option. Okay, what are Eagles saying about it? And then that's the last question on that one. Eagles not saying anything about it right now because they are, you know, they, they don't want to, you know, they're the ones who will ultimately decide whether, you know, to approve phytoremediation or not. And if they don't approve it, then what's likely to happen, and I think what most people expect will happen is that, uh, Wolverine ends up putting a uh, like a 20 acre cap, uh, 20 or 30 acre cap on the area, and you know that's more or less what happens. Right. Just so I understand, I mean, visually, I imagine they're sticking something on top because PFAS is surface active, right? So it's is it to stop the PFAS in the groundwater coming up to the surface? Is that what a cap actually does? Do you know? No, a cap is uh, essentially a, a, like a lid uh, on top of a dump site or a contamination site, and it could be it can be clay. It's some some kind of impermeable surface surface, so water doesn't get through, right? So rainwater doesn't get through, and you know the point of that is if rainwater is constantly washing through this you know source area of waste, it's just extending. You know, it, it's moving that rainwater becomes groundwater and then it moves uh, contamination off site. And so if you stop the rainwater from infiltrating through the contamination with a cap over it, then you're reducing the amount of contamination that would be leaving that site. If you put a cap on it and it's continuing to leach underneath and continuing, the plume is continuing to spread, it seems like you'd never be able to go back and clean it up because you've got this cap on it heavy equipment can remove a cap too you know it's not like that's that's impossible but i mean it would be it would be a kind of thing i mean a company would fight that i mean you, they would say you just we, we just spend a ton of money putting this cap on why do you what, what's the purpose of, of redoing that now what you know why would we be forced to do that and but but what you what you've noted is a is a valid criticism <laughs> of that potential cleanup option. And that's why sort of the local uh, experts in the area are trying to argue that if you're going to put a cap on it, then you also need to put some extraction wells either around the cap or at the other end of the plume and to keep that plume from continuing to feed into the river where it's getting into tributaries of the Great Lakes and, and, and so forth. Garrett, is there anything else that you would like to say about PFAS in Michigan? You know, just today I did an interview with a researcher in Indiana, which is a state just south of Michigan, who studies atmospheric deposition of contaminants in the Great Lakes region. And they haven't published this study yet, uh, but they gave a preview of it at a conference I was tuning into. 
And what they found is that there's pretty substantial levels of PFAS coming down into rainwater over the Great Lakes area. They measure PFAS in the rainwater over a several week period in, in Chicago last August. And they found like 50 to 800 parts per trillion PFAS in rain. In rain. And so what is the acceptable level of PFOS in Michigan now? There isn't a standard for PFOS in rain anywhere, right? But in, in the MTLs in drinking water in Michigan are, we're talking single digit parts per trillion, up to, you know, depending on which ones you're talking to. But they, they're pretty low for some of the, the, the longer chain compounds like PFOS and PFOA and PFNA. In Michigan, do people drink tank water? Because I know that's a big thing in parts of Australia, but is it a big thing in Michigan, that people would rely on rainwater for drinking? Well, I know people rely on rainwater for irrigation water, like rain barrels and stuff. I don't think many people in Michigan, or maybe some people in very rural areas are drinking rainwater or tank water, but I don't think that's a wide thing. I know that America uses 65% of their biosolid for agriculture, and if they're spread out in a field and they've already got PFAS in them, because there's been proof of that, you know, like in Maine and places like that, dairy farms have been shut down. Um, if the biosolids are spread out and it's raining on them, you could imagine that that biosolid source would become more contaminated with PFAS. Right. Well, yeah, it's, that's, it's the background level of contamination thing. And that's what sort of the rain, this idea of atmospheric deposition of PFAS from rainwater, that's, that's the sort of the first thing uh, that I think people are going to uh, connect that to. It's like, okay, so you've got all of these remediation sites or PFAS sites or drinking water. You know, people are finding PFAS in their drinking water and there's no explanation for it. And it's low level somewhere. And, and it's like, well, where is this coming from? Right. And, and regulators in some cases are stumped. It's like, we don't know why you've got PFAS in the water. Maybe there's a source area nearby and there's nothing obvious. And it's like, well, this thing with spreading biofuels on farm fields, right? Yep, you're releasing it into the environment, you know, and gets in the soil and groundwater. And then it moves. Same with the rain. But also Great Lakes, they have PFAS in them, right? The Great Lakes are a huge source of drinking water for people. And, and the state of Michigan has definitely found water systems that pull from the Great Lakes and are pulling in PFAS at times. And it depends on, like, what part of the year... The levels will vary based on the season and, and, and various things like currents and, and temperature and whatnot. But it's not as if the Great Lakes are, are PFAS-free. I mean, you've got all kinds of source areas in Michigan that are bleeding the stuff into the groundwater, which is going into the rivers, which are tributaries of the Great Lakes, which are constantly, you know, bringing PFAS to the Great Lake. And so it's really no surprise that drinking water systems, you know, intakes you have some cases fairly close to the tributary outlet are pulling in PFAS. It's happening in Michigan. And then, like what you've just been saying, the atmosphere is pulling that PFAS back up and then redistributing it through rain. Absolutely. In fact, weather systems that move across the Great Lakes can draw up an enormous amount of moisture. People in Australia might not be terribly familiar with the Great Lakes, but if you're standing on the edge of, uh, on the shore of Lake Michigan and trying to look across to see the state of Wisconsin, 
you, you can't. It, they're inland seas. They're enormous. And they're not just little, small lakes. They're huge. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk with you today. And I'm sure you could talk about PFAS for, for days, as I could. <laughs> All I want to say is, do you think you'll be reaching a point where you stop reporting on PFAS anytime soon, Garrett? Or, or do you expect it to continue for decades to come? You know, I, I think I'll be writing about this for as long as I'm you know, an environment reporter. Um, the researcher I talked to today said, you know, this is the new PCBs. And I've heard it, you know, I've heard that this is the new asbestos. I've heard, you know, various comparisons, but it they make sense. And just everything that I, all indications are that I'm going to be writing about this for many years. Thank you very much for talking with me today, Garrett, on Talking PFAS podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Kaylee, and I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. The next episode of Talking PFAS will be Talking PFAS News, which will publish on Monday, the 28th of June. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to share and to follow the Talking PFAS podcast. And you can also follow me on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS issues. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please share, but contact me for reuse permission at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.